Please pray with me. Father, we ask that you would give us insight into the words that are before us this morning. And we pray that you would teach us to live them out. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I have a story to tell you this morning. It's a story about current events. The first time I heard this story this week, I thought it was a comedy. It was very amusing. It was very comical. But the more I found out about this story, it appeared to me that it was actually a tragedy. Let me tell you what it is. This week, a piece of controversial legislation was moving through the Wisconsin legislature. And it was so controversial that thousands upon thousands of people descended upon Madison, the capital city. The scene started to look more like the Middle East than the, than the Midwest. So many people came and flooded the capital building itself that every square inch of standing room was occupied. There wasn't an empty space to be found. Since the majority party had enough votes to pass this legislation, passage was assured. But then, all the state senators and the other party ran away. They fled the state, knowing that unless one of them was present, the vote could not take place. So when none of the minority party senators showed up, the sergeant-in-arms, the cop in charge of the Capitol building was sent to look for these senators and their offices. He looked under desks and closets. No senators to be found. So the Wisconsin state troopers were dispatched to search all over the state. But of course, the senators were across state lines, safely outside the troopers' jurisdiction. And the standoff continues as we speak. I You know, I love observing politics, and I've heard of filibusters, but I've never heard of politicians running away to avoid a vote. And I thought it was comical at first, but the more coverage, the more enmity you observe, it's really tragic. And my joy and and comedy turned to heartache. It's not hard to find enemies, and it's not hard to make enemies. But it is hard to love them. Who are your enemies? Who are the people in your life that you wish would run away? Who are the people in your life that you wish would leave your life and become somebody else's problem? Do you have that mental list? Let's take that list and compare them to you. Who's smarter and wiser, you or your enemies? Who's more compassionate? Who is more moral and upright? Who has stronger character, you or your enemies? We all know the answer. You do. I do. Amen. Thank you, brother. We are much wiser than our enemies, more insightful. We have better ideas, clear common sense. We're more emotionally stable. 
We're more upright, loving, and moral. But Jesus walks up to us. And he says, okay, so prove it. Prove how much more mature and stronger and wiser and compassionate you are by loving them. How well we love our enemies tests our spiritual life in at least four ways. Here are the four ways that loving our enemies tests our spiritual lives. It tests our strength. It tests our prayer life. It tests how close we want to be to God. And it tests how well we understand the gospel. First, loving our enemies tests our strength. A lot of times when we think about loving enemies, we think that's what weak people do. Only wimps turn the other cheek, right? That's what people who don't have any other options, people who are, who are scared to stand up, weak people do that. But loving enemies requires great strength. If you're going to love an enemy, you need to be strong enough to make yourself vulnerable to further injury or insult. And you need to be strong enough to know that your attempts to love may never be recognized. Notice in verse 45 that God loves his enemies and his friends the same way. He sends the sun and the rain on both of them. Two things that are absolutely vital for an agricultural society. If you're going to have a good job and stay healthy, he sends those things on both the good and the evil even though the evil never acknowledge God's love. But he keeps on loving them in that way. God does that because he's strong enough to love without being recognized. Let me give you another example. There's only one time I've ever seen a six foot seven, 250-foot-pound man with a black eye. It happened when I was in high school. One day, I'm sitting in Sunday school, and my youth pastor walks in, and he has this deep purple welt right around his eye. And everybody said, Jay, what happened? He had been at a country concert that weekend, and it was crowded, and he would accidentally bumped into the guy behind him and spilled this guy's beer. And Jay said, oh, I'm so sorry. And as he's reaching into his back pocket to grab his wallet to buy the guy another beer, all of a sudden, pop. And Jay said, he's just like, wow, okay, whatever. That man will probably never recognize how much Jay loved him by not taking his massive arms and hitting him back. Jay was strong enough to love without being recognized for it. And he was strong enough to endure the embarrassment of acquaintances and strangers for a week as he walked around with a black eye, many people who would never know how that black eye got there. One of the risks in loving our enemies is that they may never recognize our love for them. Unrequited love doesn't just happen in romance. If you love your enemies, they may never understand it as love. And that can be painful. It can bruise our egos. 
President Obama awarded 14 Presidential Medal of Freedoms this past week to, to people in various industries. And if we take it seriously to love our enemies, we may not get any awards from the people around us. And only strong people can handle that. Loving our enemies tests the strength of our character. That's what Jesus is getting at in verses 46 through 47. He says, you think that you're better than the people that don't know God. But unless you love your enemies, you're no different. Yes, you love the people who love you. But even the Bernie Madoffs of the world do that. Even the financial crooks and cheats of the world do that. Loving our enemy tests how strong our character is. Second, it tests the health of our prayer life. I don't know about you, but there's two types of prayer that I tend to do. One type is going through the motions. Saying good words to God, talking more out of habit than, than really thinking things through. And I do it to say, okay, I've prayed. I can check that box. It's not a good way to pray, and that's not how I recommend praying. But when I get busy and I'm not very careful, that's what I can slip into. But there's another kind of prayer that I do that's a lot harder. And it's not about getting prayer done. It's about connecting with God. When I really take time to focus and be honest with God about what's going on, that's when he can shape my heart. Praying for our enemies tests our prayer life. To see if we're just going to go through the motions so we can say, yes, God, I said a prayer for my enemies. Or are we going to really pray and take the time and pray for them to the point that we begin to care much, as much about their well-being as we do about our own? Loving our enemies tests the health of our prayer life. We've seen the first two tests. Let's look at the third. Loving our enemies tests how close we want to be to God. There may not always be a, a reward from the people around us when we seek to love our enemies. No one may pin a medal on our chest. But God will always see that and always reward it. The reward Jesus highlights is in verse 45 and in verse 9, earlier on in chapter 5. He says, those who make peace and those who love their enemies become children of God. They become the people in the world with the closest relationship with God. The only downside about that is getting that close relationship often means going through some of the painful things that God has gone through by loving enemies the way he has, by suffering through the same things he has. Unfortunately, that's the double-edged sword. We enjoy this very close relationship with God, but the cost for that is doing the same things that he has. And that's sometimes painful. One of my friends was a pastor in Southern California for a number of years. Had a successful church. Everything was going fantastic. He accepted a call to become a pastor in Manila, the Philippines. He and his family went there, and they loved it. 
They were there at a fantastic time. Great things were happening in the country. God was doing amazing things in the church. They loved it there. Then one day, he got a call from a church in Sacramento, California, in the northern part of the state. This big, well-established church wanted my friend to come and be their pastor. So he and his wife were praying about this. As they were doing that, they placed a globe before them. And as they were praying, they said, Lord, we don't see any reason to go. We like it here. But if you want us to go, we'll go. And they heard God say to them, If you want to know my son more, you will go to Sacramento. And in that moment, my friend thought two things. He thought, Lord, you know that's what I want. But he also thought, that's probably going to involve a lot of suffering. So they took the call to Sacramento. They went out there, and everything seemed to be going great. But then it emerged that secret meetings had been happening. First, it was groups of dozens of people. Eventually, it was groups of hundreds of people meeting secretly. And as the months progressed, this group became so irate that they approached the church leadership and demanded that my friend be fired. So my friend went to meet with them, and he heard their complaints. And what was the awful thing that he had done? They said, when is he going to stop talking about Jesus? When is he finally going to start talking about something else? You can imagine that that cut pretty deep. My friend stayed on there and helped that congregation become a group of people that loved Jesus and loved hearing about him. But in the process, he went through a great amount of pain to love people like God did, to love people who wanted nothing to do with him. And he became closer to God and knew God greater, but it came at great cost. Loving our enemies tests how close we really want to be to God. The fourth test which is perhaps the biggest test of all, tests how well we understand the gospel. When God asks us to love our enemies, he's asking us to live out the gospel. This is how Romans 5.10 describes the gospel. While we were still enemies of God, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Loving our enemies is no different than what God did for us. While we were his enemies, he loved us anyway. He didn't wait for us to become lovable. He took the first step and moved toward us. And, it's, and it could possibly be true, it probably is true, that many of your enemies do not deserve your love. They may have done awful things that deserve nothing but revenge and retaliation and punishment but if that's the case, that only puts them into the same camp that you and I were in before Jesus entered our lives. Loving our enemies tests how well we understand the gospel. Do we really understand? 
that we were once enemies of God? Do we really understand that we were loved with the love we did not deserve? And do we understand that enough to love others the same way Jesus loved us? Loving our enemies in such a way tests our strength. It takes strength because it's going to cost you. It may cost you blood, sweat, tears. It may cost you a loss of reputation. It may cost you embarrassment. You may get literal or metaphorical black eyes. It will test your prayer life. It will take time to slow down and genuinely pray to the point that you want God to bless their lives just as much as you want him to bless your lives. It will test how close you actually want to be to God. And it will test how well we understand the gospel. But maybe, maybe we need to love our enemies just as much as they need our love so that we will really, truly, once again, understand what the gospel is all about.